This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless Summer, everybody. I assume that's what you're here for. Or maybe you're here for the second part of our interview with Dr. Brad Vermerlin. Well, if so, that's what you're going to get. So let's jump into right before he started to explain cultural entropy. By the end, I talk about it as cultural entropy. Cultural here doesn't refer to the broader American culture, but it refers to American evangelicalism itself as its own, mm. as, as its own religious culture that in previous decades had at least somewhat more coherence and togetherness to it. And that especially you know, since the 90s and after the, after the turn of, of the millennium has started to fall apart and break down, I think. So that's basically the idea of cultural entropy that I propose at the end of the book as a, as a different way of thinking about secularization. So I'd say that I'd say American evangelicalism is secularizing within itself. So it's close to internal secularization, but it's in the sense that um, a previously coherent cultural system is starting to break down and fall apart right. and, and kind of dissolve and go in different ways. I, and I think that often describes uh, you know, my experience, my relationship with evangelicalism, I often call myself barely an evangelical because I've, I've know very little about what that means anymore. Right. The, the traditional, is it Bebbington, right. The quadrilateral of all of those things, right. Those things I haven't changed my opinion on, right. The, the biblicism, the crew, the Christ center, the conversion, right. All of these things I'm, you know, I, I haven't changed, but it seems to me that yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly true. That whatever that that those things might have been the narrative, the cultural center of evangelicalism, and right now, what actually is central to evangelicalism is at least much less clear than it probably was uh, 50, 60 years ago. So, what does it look like? You can in evangelicalism, uh, or you know, or more generally, as these as these cultural systems start to break down. Right. Before I answer that question, if you don't mind, I'd like to say something about the Bebbington quadrilateral. Sure. Yeah, please do. So his, traditionally, I guess recently, you know, since it was proposed in the late eighties, the Bebbington quadrilateral has served as these four benchmarks that are supposed to define evangelicalism. But what I do in my book is I use the Bebbington quadrilateral, those four features, not as these kind of clear traits that mark you as an evangelical or not, but what they become are the precisely the terms on which the infighting is fought. Mm. So I huh. call them I call them I call them rules. Actually, they become they become less traits and more rules you should follow, and that um, people get in trouble for not following sufficiently from the perspective of the conservatives. So that's why you have people critiquing other evangelical leaders for being insufficiently biblical or not taking the um, crucifixion of Christ seriously enough in some way or in some insufficient manner. Um, or um, so th these biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and, and activism, these become uh, precisely the terms on which the fight is fought and not so mm. much, not so much defining traits anymore because the problem is they become, they're like tools that you can yield, you can, you can wield um, 
in like fighting over precisely these terms. So biblicism means taking the Bible really seriously, right? The problem ha- occurs when people who hold non-traditional interpretations still think they're taking the Bible really seriously. And then you're like, okay, well, and then there's this huge blow up and it's like, so it, they, the, the Bebbington four become, um, um, they're, you can, you can look at them differently, which I do in the book. So that that's really interesting. This, this idea that, right. That if I'm trying to gain a, a you know, a positioning in, in evangelicalism right now i can how do i how do i move people out of influence how do i you know how do i get rob bell out of his place of prominence or any of these how do i call out world vision you know these examples i find one of the things that are central to evangelicalism and i say aha we've got you you're not this right how do i how do i tell young evangelicals progressives aren't evangelical right that's not an option going forward because you know, whether it's biblicism, right, whatever, you know, whatever the thing is that they're, they're not getting. I think that that is a, that's really interesting that they have become rules or tools, um, rather than traits. Una- yeah. yeah, traits of describing. Yeah, because view, viewing them as viewing them as traits pr- assumes that they are, you know, clearly defined, and everybody agrees on what they mean. But that's not what you see empirically in American evangelicalism. And so they become these, these rules and people are, you know, calling you out saying, Hey, you're not following this rule sufficiently. And so it's, um, that's where a lot of the infighting, um, um, it's not where it comes from, but it's, it's kind of the, the, the way it's talked about in a sense. And, and you have one of the phrases that in sociology is talked about is what's at stake in a field. And, and you yeah. have um, religious leaders using that language too and they don't it's it's this it's sociological language that like the gospel is at stake or the bible is at stake or something like that right yeah i wonder uh you know thinking about again the idea of differentiation entropy uh stemming off of the reformation or wherever you want to place it so you see that you know maybe at one point you have when you have a more consistent evangelicalism you have this you know quadrilateral but even that has kind of been you know, you have that as kind of a, you know, I, I'm not trying to be coy about it, but like a kind of dumbing down of maybe a larger, you know, kind of confessional framework, or, you know, you have the, you know, here are the fundamentals all of a sudden in the early 20th century, uh, that these are what now mark us out as opposed to those who are going liberal, uh, at least in, you know, Northern Presbyterianism. And so you like, you get, okay, well, here's the fundamentals, or maybe, you know, here's the quadrilateral, here's the, here's the things that we're about. But because you're already, you know, kind of, you're already sliding down the hill, like you're already experiencing this entropy, uh, inevitably, you get to the point where that what was kind of like a dividing line or like a clear, like, you know, marking out of this is who we are, all of a sudden has to become something where now we have to divide within that as well. And so there's just this continual, like pulling apart, even as you get smaller and smaller within, you know, what exactly it is that defines you. Does that sound even close to right? That's what I'm hearing. Yes. So I don't say this in the book, but I think uh, confessionalism is um, uh, one of the solutions to a lot of what we're talking about, right? The infighting and the entropy and the evangelical leaders going in different directions on all sorts of issues, right? So um, a lot of this is a problem for non-confessional, especially low church evangelicals. Mm-hmm. But, but if, you're, if you're a confessional evangelical Lutheran, 
I mean, Lutherans are so quiet and polite. They don't argue, right? You don't see Lutherans <laughs> in these conversations. So, and, and I think it's somewhat the same for Presbyterians, right? They, they have their confessional statements going in and historical, like going back to the first two centuries after the Reformation. So it's, um, I think they have less um, at stake in these battles than say your, you know, typical non-denominational or otherwise low church evangelical. Well, well, Brad, if if earlier you lost our audience critiquing the reformers, we have a lot of confessional listeners. So you're back in with them, you know, presenting that as a solution. So I'm vindicated. Yes, you're, yes. you're vindicated. <laughs> so let's tell me. So tell us what it looks like when these kinds of this cultural entra- entropy begins. What does that look like? Because as you said, it's more of an abstract way of understanding this. Right. What does it look like? I mean, that's I don't. I don't know, right? <laughs> in the sure. book, and the book I propose it at the end, and only in like two or three pages. And I say, okay. like, I, I don't have the space to work this out fully. I think it would take a whole book. And I think there's been other, like, I'm not the first one to ever think of secularization this way. I think Charles Taylor's A Secular Age talks about a little bit of 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 the kind of more qualitative mm. kind of falling apart of things older. But um, what it would look like, I guess. Once the, I mean, how what you're asking is how would we measure this, right? So one thing would be like people who previously got along not getting along anymore. People okay. who people who previously um, could worship together can no longer worship together. People who previously agreed on things now now agree on less. Um, hmm. Hmm. That sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. You might even see you know organize at the organizational level. You'll you'll either see organizations springing into existence to defend a certain position or else, you know, falling out of existence for various reasons, uh, whether that's, you know, losing you know, mission drift or scandal or whatever. So there's, there's a few, a few things that you, I mean, once the, basically you're asking is what does it look like for something to fall apart? Right. And it's hard to like explain, but we I think we have a general sense of what that might look yeah. like. Yeah. And, and I wonder if, you know, even part of this, maybe on a more abstract level, right? An example outside of evangelicalism would be, you know, even even about the United States, these questions of what what is the narrative of America, right? Is it this, the land of the free? Is it a, you know, is the, these kinds of questions or one of the big, you know, in the, in the Re- Reformation, right? The story of salvation is justification by faith alone, or was it the, the Roman Catholic notion before that? These, these, these things that held those cultures, whether it was an ecclesiastical culture or a national culture, these narratives, these beliefs, right, are now being either, you know, and this is what you're saying, they're now being debated, they're not agreed on, we don't share them, this same vision going forward. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, how far can it go, right? Do you, sure. how far can something fall apart? Um, so I think, um, Campbell and Putnam in, in American Grace show that statistically over decades, there's consistently been like a 10% really committed Christians, right. Who are like just conservative on every issue. And so on on some level, there's like this, at least recently, there's been this like 10% figure that's like really not going anywhere or whatever, but, um, Still, I think I'm broader looking at the full picture. It's, um, I mean, you're not seeing reform people having 
conferences with holiness people or right. that type that type of thing. It's just they're not interested in, in in doing anything together really very much. So um and and is the the weakness in the evangelical institutions this falling apart is that what gave the new calvinists the opportunity to get to the places of influence that they got to because they were they were kind of up for grabs i you know to put it not technically right so i think it's kind of a funny story actually because before the new calvinism came on the scene and say 2006 or whatever you want to say um there was this starting to see a little bit of falling apart with uh you know post-modernist philosophy and people almost nobody was lgbtq affirming at the time but you started to get this sense that maybe this is around the corner um and you saw um you saw um egalitarian gender egalitarianism um, was there already so you saw these on a, on a few issues at least you saw this kind of maybe troubles on around on the horizon and then um there was the therapeutic aspect was there with the seeker sensitive movement and all of this going on and so the new calvinism presents itself as a conservative historic alternative to to all of that and so in that sense yes there was there's a story of coming leading up to the new calvinism but in the book i also tell the story that um after kind of the advent, if you will, of the new Calvinism, um, say 2006, 7, 8, for the next 10 years, um, it doesn't get any uh, more peaceful in American evangelicalism by any means, right? You still see um, probably even increased uh, disagreement and fighting um, now explicitly on LGBTQ affirmation and gay marriage and all sorts of other things. And um, uh, gender egalitarianism, I think, is stronger than ever. And so, um, and I hate to keep going back to the same sex and gender topics. We can think of other topics too that are, but those, I mean, religious liberty, maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, we can get really, you know, we can talk about environmentalism or if you want, or <laughs> immigration. But, um, yeah. but, anyways, on all sorts of topics, and not just moral, but also like theological topics. So uh, the 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 infighting and the disagreement has continued. So there's the there's this there's this entropy building up to when people started talking about and recognizing the new communism. But then there's also this. It didn't stop, right? They didn't solve the problem within American evangelicalism. They a lot of the a lot of the infighting among evangelical leaders actually helped to fortify and recognize the new communism as a thing, as an identifiable expression of evangelicalism. So um, now um, in 2021, I think what we see a lot, mind you, I don't pay nearly as much attention to American evangelicalism as I did when I was researching this book, but my general sense is that you see um, a little bit more just like ignoring each other. They're not so much interested in fighting anymore. They just like, like they, they, they're just, is this uneasy coexistence of different expressions of evangelical Christianity. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And and it might be because there's even more in fighting. I find it interesting that the entropy has continued, even with the and you can tell me if this is that this kind of entropy, the list of big prominent new Calvinist leaders from 
you know, 2012, a lot of those names are out of, out of favor. We, you know, we take pleasure on our show when you're not here to do things like find the videos of Mark Driscoll, the gospel coalition used to post and watch those. And because there's so many of these leaders that are, that have left the faith, left their churches, sadly, some have committed suicide even. And that seems to me to be a sign of the continuing cultural entropy. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, there's something negative going on there for sure. But I I don't know if cultural entropy would be the type of um, dynamic that I would want to kind of sink down to that micro or personal level. Um, It's more of something that happens to systems, right? And structures like American evangelicalism as a whole. but so when you have the thing, I'm not saying it's like, so it is, it, it's, it's definitely something happened and it's negative and it's a problem for the new Calvinism. I don't know if that would be something I would call cultural entropy though. Right. It would be sure. like, that's a, that's a separate issue of like celebrity pastors and like accountability and stuff like that, which if you were to amplify it up and look at it at a field level, then, then we, maybe we could talk about cultural entropy. Right. Yeah. So I don't know what we what we would call like the, a list of ten mega church pastors really falling out of favor. So yeah, and and maybe the the final thing we should look at is as new Calvinism in Michael and I's view certainly is is falling apart. Even as some of the the men who were at the head of it are are re- reaching retirement age, you know, I want to ask you about kind of your thesis about a conservative religion in this modern milieu uh what what can we learn from new calvinism about religious strength what are what are things we can think about um from your point of view uh going forward okay yeah that's a whole other issue it's like the flip side of religious weakness it's like how can you as like conservative christians or or conservative christian organizations is there any chance to flourish in such a, such a context? Right. Yeah. It even say, I mean, even as we talk, I'm like, man, we have just painted a super depressing picture of what like, you know, life uh, in the church can look like in our culture. And so, yeah, if there's this, like this huge force of this, you know, kind of entropy that's pulling everything apart, uh, what is there that can stand in the midst of that? Right. I'm glad we're talking about it then. <laughs> um, so in again just for brief background in sociology there i'm not the first one to try to answer that question there's been answers in the past right so one is basically and i i don't accept so one i don't accept basically is that um religion in a society functions basically like any other consumer good and it's a product of supply and demand dynamics and so that the more pluralism you have the, the more religious products on offer, the more participation you'll have, right? And so that um, pluralism isn't really that big of a problem for conservative religion because it actually, it opens up a free market and it just, the the market thrives with competition. That's one view. Um, I don't think it holds up empirically or historically, but anyways, another view um, is something called status discontent theory. And it's basically that um, you start to, the religious leaders start to get really anxious about their status 
whether that's culturally or economically or whatever, and like, oh no, we're, we no longer are where we used to be. And so they rally the troops and they organize their resources and they launch campaigns and they become strong instead. Um, to me, that doesn't have much explanatory power. It's almost tautological. It's like, um, oh, we, we were strong. Oh no, we're becoming weak. Let's become strong instead. It doesn't really give me much of a story there. Um, another one, for example, would be like um, what Christian Smith has called sheltered enclave theory, um, which is basically hunker down and protect yourselves from the various aspects of the modern world. And hopefully conservative Christians can survive. I kind think of like Benedict option. Exactly. This, I was going to say that it's like um, the, it's um, I think the Benedict option is kind of a, a newer um, articulation of that older theory. So yes, that, that's a, that's one of the options. Um, and there's a couple more that I won't get into, but um, the one that I focus on in the book, which I do think is new, is an emphasis on, so think about it. How do you, how do you try to hold a, a, a cultural system falling apart together? Well, effort, right? Trying. Mm. Um, and the idea is that, and, and I think you see this at the churches I study, right? You see people like religious leaders trying to create good worship experiences and put forth compelling arguments and write books that will persuade people and to be a, uh, a good Christian in the world and to get to know your neighbors and to uh, all this stuff. Right. So I think one of the most overlooked theories in sociology about how conservative religion can thrive in the modern world is, um, is basically like a little bit of effort and thought, you know, and um, what else can you do, but try. Right. Yeah. So that's the theory. That's my theory. So I, I call it strategic action field theory, basically, where you have in, in this broader landscape, you have, and, and sometimes it involves like maneuvering and positioning, like in certain ways to like market yourself in a certain way. But other times it's just like, you know, how you present yourself in public, how you, I mean, just think about Tim Keller in New York City. He's a great example of like trying to be persuasive to certain audiences. Yeah. And what else can you do? Right. So that's my, that's the thought. Yeah. yeah I wonder if on a theological level, it seems like one of the things that the new Calvinism had going for it was the emphasis on, you know, either if you want to put like the sovereignty of God over everything or, you know, kind of Jesus is Lord over every area of your life or the, you know, hey, glorify God in every area of life, everything that you do. And what these provided, I think in some ways was a, at least one way to try to collect all of these different, you know, as everything's differentiating, it collects them all again and says, well, no, in education, in your home life, in how you eat, in how you exercise, in how whatever you do, glorify God, whatever you do, God is sovereign over it. And so it provided maybe a, a kind of, of system almost that held everything together, at least at least in part, um, or at least tried to, right? And so maybe, maybe this is one of the things that allowed the new Calvinism to act at least in some strength, at least for a time. And so I wonder if we can learn from that, you know, this, this need to have uh, even just on a, you know, on a, a theological or intellectual level, like a, a worldview or, or a way of looking at everything that says, no, these are not, you know, all of these things are not separate. Uh, we shouldn't atomize everything. 
but actually they're all a part of one whole. And to have that more kind of organic way of looking at everything as it works together, I think is probably going to be part of, you know, what it looks like to uh, return to some kind of strength. Yeah. Pastor Michael, I think you're getting at, at two things that one, they are, they were positioning themselves in places where maybe we could say there were persuadable people in the field, persuadable institutions, persuadable people. And then they were actually relying on the resources that conservative Christianity, conservative religion comes with, because it does come with, well, thousands of years of thought about life, about work, and trying to present that to people that they thought were persuadable, right? Tim Keller, they, you know, this is the emphasis on the cities. There are persuadable people in the cities, you know, young evangelicals are persuadable. Is this what you're talking about, um, Brad? Yes. Yeah. And this is what I get into in the second half of my book. Once I kind of start to spell out my explanatory model. So after I've set the context and described everything and put the theory, basically I walk through all these ways that new Calvinist leaders um, have strategically positioned themselves or maneuvered. Um, and, and sometimes it's like, you know, moving, like moving to cities, um, uh, I talk about emphasizing that, uh, emphasizing a sovereign big God for young evangelicals and a few other things. Um, there's a whole, again, gender and sexual dynamic there that a, a lot of young people uh, might be persuadable. So there's certain things that um, just because I call something strategic, I don't mean it's disingenuous. I mean, it's like, it's deliberative. It's, uh, it requires thought and effort and it, um, it offers you as a religious leader, like a, like a potentially a advantage in advancing your religious worldview among a certain, uh, I guess, audience. So it's, there, there's, I spell out eight or 10 ways that new Calvinist leaders did this um, from like 2008 to, to the time, you know, I finished like 2016, 17. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, contextualizing is, is something I talk about in the book, right? Just like, mm -hmm. um, contextualizing it to your city and knowing the type of people who are there and the mood of your city and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, let me ask one, one question about this, that, you know, a person, if I was thinking about an objection to your theory, it would be that as things become more modern, as things become, or as postmodernism takes root, isn't, isn't that now, or, or how would your, why does your theory think this strategic field action breaks down the inherent barriers to religion, uh, conservative religion that a hyper secular person, the hyper secular milieu of, right, all egalitarian, right, the affirming of LGBT, the, um, the, you know, not belief in the Bible that the way the new Calvinists presented. What about, what you're saying, why does that work in that setting? Because it almost sounds like it wouldn't. <laughs> right, right. So my claim is not that it entirely breaks down those barriers. Okay. For even the majority of people. Basically, it's the, um, so I, I draw from business literature on strategy. And one of the, one of the principles of strategy in the business literature is that a good strategy is not for everyone. Hmm. And so it's basically get the low hanging fruit and um, it's, it's 
get who you can, I guess. Right. So it's not going to, I, 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 my claim isn't that it's going to completely overhaul and like persuade, you know, every, like even, 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 a, you know, most people. So it's just like, um, there's going to be a segment of, um, I guess you might call it a target audience or whatever that can be persuaded and will be persuaded. And so do what you can in that regard. It would be like saying the Calvinists with a sovereign God should go find the elect and they will be persuaded of, of truth. Right. Hey, hey I'm just a social scientist. <laughs> Yep. Yep. And we're just podcasters. Well, <laughs> Pastor Michael, before we uh, close our, 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 our time on this, is there anything else you want to ask or, or add before we, before we end? Yeah, I find this very helpful. And uh, not too long ago, I preached from Psalm one and uh, there's this clear distinction in Psalm one uh, between the one who meditates upon the law of God, right? The righteous man. And he is like this tree. And there's this image of this kind of organic growth. He's this tree that, you know, his roots are down deep. He's right by the source of life, this stream. And uh, so, you know, he's always bearing fruit, even when, you know, it seems like he shouldn't be it, like his, his leaf does not wither. Whereas uh, the, the wicked can't stand in the judgment of God. And they're like chaff that the wind blows away. And uh, it seems to me that, you know, like, any kind of entropy, you know, this is, this is part of the fallen world, uh, cultural entropy being part of that. Uh, this is, I think this is what sin does. It, it tears apart. It, it atomizes it. It, uh, you know, moves increasingly toward, uh, death. If you could call it that, uh, that's how, that's how I would define it. You know, probably not the best social science word, but, uh, from, you know, from pastoral perspective, right. This is what I'm going to call it. And, uh, you have, on the other hand, this option of, you know, there, there is a way, uh, you know, I think that the Lord himself has provided for us uh, where you can have this kind of long-term, stable, organic growth in godliness individually, corporately, uh, that actually has this, you know, lasting uh, stability to it. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm just, you know, meditating upon that as we talk about, you know, these, these ideas of, of cultural entropy and what to do uh where to go next yeah it's a fascinating area to think about so it's important once again big thanks to brad for coming on the show we hope you enjoyed this interview as i mentioned you can find this full part one and part two of this interview unedited on youtube all right check it out Check back with us next week for some more Restless Summer.